Hi, everybody. My name is Bruce D. I am an alcoholic. I live in, C uh, in Seattle. And um, first and foremost, I want to thank Bridget for inviting me to, uh, to speak to you guys. And secondly, uh, to thank you guys for supporting me in this. Um, I, an admission right up front, I don't consider myself to be a great orator by any, any stretch of the imagination. And I'm always a little nervous when I speak. So uh, bear with me, if you will. Also, uh, I think what I'm going to do this time, because sometimes it's a little hard for me to stay on track. So what I've done is I've actually given myself an outline to follow. And I'm going to tell you the outline, and then I'm going to tell you what's in the outline. We'll go from there. So I'm going to start with a little bit about my background, and then how I discovered alcohol, and what I did after I discovered alcohol to try to quit drinking. Uh, and uh, how my attempts failed, then uh, bottoming out and coming to traditional AA, and then uh, detoxing sober. Uh, those are actually in the correct order, too, which you'll find out. I actually came to traditional AA and was in traditional AA before I went to um, detox, which was interesting. And uh, then uh, after that, discovering uh, secular AA and uh, specifically Jeff Munn, and then uh, made my, the last step is living in step 10, which I, for one, consider to be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Anyway, so let's get started. So um, I was born in San Diego, California in 1945 uh, to a non-religious Jewish family who didn't drink. And I lived the best part of my life with and around those people. and. Um, I was really not exposed to alcohol. It just wasn't part of my upbringing for the most part. Um, so the question then is, well, then how the heck did I discover alcohol? The answer to that question was, I discovered alcohol as a result of attending a Passover service in a large Jewish temple and uh, waiting for everybody to leave and then doing runs up and down the tables, grabbing wine and drinking as much of it as I possibly could until I passed out. And that's my... That was my first brush. The first time I ever drank, I drank to a blackout. I was 13 years old. Uh, at that, the next time I, I can remember having any kind of connection with alcohol at all, I was about 15, maybe 16. Uh, a friend of mine uh, basically got a hold of a quart of, I don't remember what the hell it was, some beer or the other, and the fifth of Vin Rosé, and we drove it to a parking lot, and we opened them both up and drank them both down, guzzled them down. And of course, I ended up in another blackout. So my first two shots with alcohol were straight to blackouts. Um, and the, the impression that I was left with after that was I didn't like the hangover. But boy, did I like the way I felt when I was on the way up. Boy, did I like the way that alcohol affected me. It was, it was magical for me. I really loved it. Uh, I didn't really get started drinking until I was in college. Um, my first, um, first semester in college, I lived in the off-campus dorms, and we had people from all age groups that were there. Um, so I could get as much alcohol as I wanted legally. I didn't have to buy it. I just gave it to somebody who was 21 to go to the liquor store and get it. So I had alcohol at my disposal right from the time I started college, and that was 18. And to make a long story short, I drank from the time I was 18 till the time I was 53. So if you do a little math, that's 35 years. And during that 35-year run, I 
During that 35-year that 35-year run, a couple of things occurred to me. The first thing that occurred to me was I didn't drink like other people. That was the first thing that was real clear to me. Other people would drink and stop. I would drink and I wouldn't stop until I couldn't drink anymore. And that was um, that was you know it wasn't terribly bothersome because I was what my sponsor called a high bottom drunk. I managed to. Uh, I managed not to lose a lot of stuff over, over alcoholism. And I think it was also because I was dually addicted. I was addicted to alcohol, but I was also addicted to sugar. And I hated, yeah. I hated the hangovers. I mean, I hated the hangovers. And it just got to the point where I found a combination of drinking and eating, which together, basically I could pass out over and I wouldn't have to drink the amount of alcohol that I would need to drink to pass out and then have to suffer those damned hangovers. All right. So that was 35 years off and on. Um, I did manage, I did manage during that time to make one good decision um, that has stuck with me. Um, I married my wife in uh, 1975. So do the math on that one, and you'll see I've been married for 47 years to the same woman. Um, the deal with that one, <laughs> the deal with that one was that um, um, when I finally got sober, I had to make an agreement with her that I would not die until I lived at least half as many years sober uh, as I had lived drunk. And I got uh, sober in 1999. So do a little math and you'll see I still owe her a couple of more years sober before I can check out here. <laughs> Anyway, she reminds me of that all the time. Um, so, so what happened? Well, a, a couple of other things. First of all, it didn't take me long after I had started drinking to realize that I was an alcoholic. The first step that he admitted to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics, that sort of thing. Um, I knew I was alcoholic within a matter of just a few years of drinking the way I drank. But it didn't bother me. I mean, to me, um, if I could drink and I could go about conducting my life, and I was able to conduct my life, I was able to get a bachelor's degree, do a couple of years of post-grad, keep jobs, not go to jail, not get DUIs, although I should have lots of times, not get DUIs. Uh, then my drinking was my business, and I could do it if I wanted to, and nobody could tell me not to, because I wasn't really paying really heavy consequences for doing that. Um, so, so what happened? What, how, how did I eventually get to the point where I just decided I couldn't drink anymore? Well, that's a that's a bit of an interesting story. So. My wife and I gave birth to my daughter in 1982, and unfortunately, uh, my daughter carries my disease. So about the time she was 16 years old, we discovered that she was drinking and using a lot. And uh, we, we got her into an outpatient 12-step program. Um, and when she went into that program, I made a promise to her. A promise I made to her is as long as she was in that program, I would not drink. 
And her counselor came to me um, once we had her enrolled in that 12-step program. That was a great program. It was a family, a family and um, a child program. And we would get together every Tuesday night and the parents would, you know, all be in a semicircle with all the other kids in the program. And um, the uh, therapists and the counselors would be on the outside. And then you'd have a couple of people that would be sitting in the middle. They would be the featured, the featured couple, parent on one side, child on the other side. And that would be the Tuesday evening meeting. So we call that the hot seat. Anyway, um, so my child is enrolled in that program and i've made this promise and her counselor comes to me and she says to me you know you should be going to aa meetings and i said well you know i've tried aa meetings and, and i had exactly once tried an aa meeting i said i just can't do the god thing it just it just doesn't work i can't do that he said well you she said two things to me. She said, well, you need to do something. And the other thing you need to think about is your daughter is going to start talking a language you don't understand. She's going to start speaking in a language you don't know. AA is going to give her a new way of relating to the world. And it might be useful for you to go to AA meetings if for no other reason, so that you can understand her new relationship with the world. That kind of stuck in the back of my head, but I still didn't go to AA meetings. Instead, I went to a meeting at that time called Rational Recovery. Rational Recovery um, has continued to exist, by the way, since the first time I went to that. That was, let's see, she was 17, 82. That was 98. Um, no, 98. Um, I went to my first Rational Recovery meeting. Rational Recovery has morphed. It's changed over the course of time. But it's now, from what I understand, a smart recovery, which is still a good way to get sober. It just wasn't a way that ever worked for me. I went to Smart Recovery or to, to Rational Recovery meetings for about, um, I don't know, three or four months. Uh, and at the end of three or four months, um, I started drinking again. And I didn't tell anybody that I was doing that. And from about the time uh, she had been in the program, and, and she stopped drinking. She stopped drinking and she started going to AA meetings. And over the course of time, she was getting better. Uh, and I was not saying anything about my drinking. I was drinking undercover like I'd done for 35 years. You know, I lied and she didn't do everything I needed to do to try and hide my drink. Anyway. Uh, so up comes the point where she's getting ready to take her first chip in AA, the one-year anniversary, and her mother and I are going to give her her cake. And we are at that point presumably the poster parents in this program that she's enrolled in that are the success story of the program, right? She's got a year of sobriety, she's doing well, her mother's fine. She's going to Al-Anon meetings. Her dad's fine. He's going to rational recovery meetings. And about two days before she was going to, we were going to give her her cake, she caught me red-handed drinking at home. I mean, with the bottle of vodka in my hand. She caught me flat out. I didn't see her coming. 
she, she approached me from the back. And when I picked up that bottle of vodka, she said the five words that got me into Alcoholics Anonymous. The words were, Dad, what are you doing? And I bought them. I, I, can't, I can't really explain how that felt. What I can tell you is that the way that I dealt with keeping my emotions in check while I drank was not through self-pity. I wasn't the person who, who sat on that side of the equation. I sat on the other side of the equation. The other side of that equation for me was anger. Anger was the sensation that I was most at home with, especially in the last five years of my drinking. And it's how I kept my emotions at bay. And when she came to me and I heard those words, I dropped that bottle of vodka and emotionally I went to my knees. And what happened is the floor broke and I fell from my anger into this vat of the deepest, darkest sorrow I've ever known. Uh, any of you guys ever see the movie Get Out? You know, in the movie Get Out, when the, 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 the gal hypnotizes the, the, the guy and he sinks into this chair and all down into this, this darkness, this black place, and he can't get out? That's how I felt, that I had sunk completely into something that I couldn't get out of. And of course, that happened on a Tuesday. <laughs> Now, if you remember something about Tuesdays, you remember that was the night that all the parents and all the children in my daughter's program would get together in the big circle. So guess who was in the hot seat that night? You got it, me and my daughter. And uh, I, had to, I had to come clean and fess up what I had done. Um, and it was torture. I was looking at my daughter and she was looking at me with those angry eyes. And I looked over at my wife and she was crying and she looked like she had been run over by a bulldozer. And my uh, counselor walked up and put her arm around the back of my daughter. And she looked at me and she said something to me that finally hit home. She said, now are you ready to go to any lengths? And I said, yes. And I meant it. That was, um, anyway, um, so I, uh, the next day she picked me up and she took me to my first AA meeting. And there was, I was pretty clear about a couple of things when I walked into that meeting. The first thing I was clear about is that I couldn't go any further on the path that I was on. I didn't know that intellectually. I was, I was starting to feel things I had never felt before. Um, I knew that in my gut, that I couldn't keep going the way I was going. And the other thing I knew for sure is that I couldn't get my way out of it because I had tried to stop drinking for 35 years, off and on. I even went five years, five years without taking a drink once during that 35-year period, but I could not stay sober. At the end of that five-year period, I picked up and then went on seven years. So I was pretty clear I could not stay sober. And uh, she brought me into that AA meeting and she introduced me to a man. 
And um, and the next day I called that man and asked him if he would sponsor me in AA. And the decision that I made when I did that was that I would not, I would not question any of his suggestions. I would do exactly what he told me to do. The problem that I had was that I couldn't turn my will and my life over to a higher power because I didn't believe in a higher power. So what other choice was I to have except to turn my will and my life over to him? Now, I'm not recommending that anybody else do that, but that's exactly what I did. For the first year and a half, I was in AA. Whatever that man recommended, suggested, anything you want to call it, I took as a command. I didn't ask any questions. I just did what he recommended. I did what he suggested. And I did something else too. When I came into the program for the first time, a gentleman by the name of Rick R. got up and he led that meeting. He was the speaker that night. And he led that meeting. And my ears and my heart were open. I was ready to hear the message. I was ready to hear the message. And he got up and he spoke to me about his experience to everybody in the room, about his experience of dealing with alcohol. Man, I, it is one of the most profound shares I ever heard. That guy, that guy had fallen to a place I couldn't even imagine falling to. So dark and so deep, skid row, face down in the gutter, eating out of dumpsters. I was terrible. He lived that way and tried to get sober for years and years and years. And it finally took. And he was standing there in front of me with seven years sober. And I could tell, I could just tell that he was telling me the truth. He wasn't bullshitting me. I knew that what he was saying was true. I could feel it. And based on what I heard, I can't remember what he said. But what I came away with, the feeling I came away with was, holy mackerel, if this guy can get sober, I don't have any excuses. So can I. And man, that, that feeling, that feeling and the decision I made about my sponsor changed my life. That was January 6, 1999. That's the last time I ever picked up a drink. The other thing I did is the other thing I did is that I connected with the fellowship. I credit the fellowship of traditional AA for getting getting me sober. That 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 fellowship was well. The fellowship itself was in a lot of action. There were practically everybody in there that had any time at all were taking panels to uh, prisons and state hospitals, uh, um, mental health institutions, uh, Skid Row. This is in LA, Skid Row. I mean, they, there was an opportunity. Every time at the end of the meeting, the last thing that would be asked is, is there anybody taking a panel in? Invariably, someone would stand up and say, yeah, I've got a panel going to Skid Row on Wednesday night. Anyone who wants to go, come see me. Well, you know what? I went and saw him because early on, somebody came to me and said, look, you want to find out how this thing works. 
get yourself a sponsor, work the steps, call your sponsor every day, do the 90 meetings in 90 days, do what your sponsor tells you. But if you want to find out if there's a life alcohol after alcohol, if that's worrying you, come with us and we'll show you. Well, I took that as an open invitation. I went to my sponsor and I said, what do you think? Should I go? He said, absolutely. Absolutely. You should go. Go every time you feel like it, every time you get a chance. And I started going with those people. And I started connecting to those people. And those people became my people. And, uh, and they helped me get sober and stay sober. Okay, that was my bottom. And that's how I came to traditional AA. So the next thing on the list after that is detoxing sober. So after I was in AA for 45 days, as part of my agreement with uh, my daughter's uh, outpatient program, I had agreed to go into detox, 28-day detox. We call it a spin drop in Southern California. And I did that primarily to be able to save my marriage and my relationship with my family because they were the most important things in my life. And um, at 45 days sober, I went into detox. And it was unbelievably eye-opening because no one else was in detox coming in sober but me. <laughs> it was really something to see these guys coming in on stretchers and screaming and, and just unbelievably bad condition. Um, but it was very eye-opening for me to see that happen. I had already worked my first three steps with my sponsor before I went to detox. In detox, I worked those first three steps again. Never did have a connection with a higher power, so that never took. But um, but I did the deal, and um, it wasn't cheap, paid the money out of pocket, but I did save my marriage. That happened fairly quickly. Repairing my relationship with my daughter was a much longer process. In both cases, I continued to make a living amends. So that was my issue with detox and sober. So let's move on to uh, discovering secular AA. Okay. I am absolutely a huge fan of traditional AA. I love traditional AA. I think traditional AA rocks, particularly for the people in traditional AA who can do the higher power thing, who can really work that program, who can really walk that walk. And I did the best I could to try and fit in. Remember, I was raised in a non-religious Jewish family. Uh, it was pretty clear that I was not going to be a Christian, so that was not the road I looked down. But after I was in program for a little while, I did try to find, try to establish a higher a relationship with God, with a higher power. And I, I, I did, I did it. I, I looked at Buddhism. I looked at all kinds of Eastern philosophies. I looked inside my own religion. Nothing resonated. Nothing took from me. So I just basically um, took the parts of the steps that all, were all God-related and, and uh, eliminated them. Just made them go away. Went from straight from step one to step four, for example. 
and work the action steps. And, you know, those steps work for me. Socrates said it best, the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, I'm here to tell you that <laughs> step four definitely got me to, to, uh, to uh, examine my life. And um, that, was a big, that was a big deal for me. Anyway, so after about five years of being in program, I got tired of hearing the same things over and over and over again in AA meetings. I don't have to tell you what those things are. If you're from AA, you know. The prayers at the beginning and the prayers at the end and, you know, how it works and all this stuff. And uh, the shares that were all God-related and or a lot of them were God-related. And I just started to stop going to meetings. Uh, it got to the point after about 10 years in the program where I was only going to one meeting a week. And that meeting was being run by a, uh, a leader who was a secretary who was an atheist. <laughs> and that meeting for five years. So I was pretty comfortable there. But then uh, after I was there about 2016, about five years ago, um, I moved up here to uh, the Pacific Northwest. And when I got here, I just stopped going to meetings, period. I didn't go to meetings at all. And I was not, I didn't feel threatened by alcohol at all. Um, I'm going to back up for just a second. The day that I detoxed, the day that I bottomed, the day that I bottomed, I was struck so didn't realize it at the time, but that's what happened. When I say that I couldn't go any further on the path I was on, I mean I couldn't go any further on the path that I was on. People told me that you know I needed that I could get sober a day at a time. A day at a time made as much sense to me as a higher power did. It didn't resonate. The only way it was going to work is for me to stop drinking forever. That was the decision I made. So, you know, for me, to, for me not to go to meetings is not an issue because alcohol simply doesn't call to me. It's not, it's, it's not in there. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. Most of my friends are normies. Most of my friends drink. Most of my friends smoke marijuana. I can be around them all day and all night, very end, and it doesn't bother me at all. Just doesn't bother me. I don't really pay any attention to it. There is one person in my group that drinks alcoholically. And, you know, if he gets to the point where he's falling down drunk, then I have to kind of say, no, that's pretty uncomfortable. I've only had to do that once but he hasn't done it again. Nevertheless, I had to give up the notion of being able to drink, and I did, made it go away. And that brings up an interesting point too. Okay, so, you know, there's this controversy about whether we are recovering or whether we are recovered. And there's a guy that um, attends the meeting that Bridget and I go to, um, here in the States, uh, who talks about the fact that he has the ability and has had the ability over the course of his life to be able to get to a point in his life where he doesn't like what he's doing, 
and literally take a hatchet to it, cut it off, turn in a different direction, and just move, move forward along a different path, as if what had happened prior to that never happened or didn't exist or didn't impact his life anymore. And I've heard him share that. So he's got 35 or 36 years sober now. He's never read the big book. He's never worked the steps. And he's been sober for 35 years in AA, goes to meetings. And um, I find what he says pretty intriguing because he never qualifies as being recovering or recovered. He just qualifies as, hey, I got to a point in my life where alcohol wasn't working and I made a right turn and went another direction and that's what happened to me. And I look at that and I go, well, wow, isn't that what happened to me? Didn't I get to a point where alcohol wasn't working for me anymore? And I made a decision to cut it off and I just went a different direction with the help of a lot of people, I might add, but I just went a different direction. Am I recovering? And if I'm recovering, what am I recovering from? Am I recovered? Am I recovered? What am I recovered from? I simply am at a point in my, I simply hit a point in my life where either I had to die or I had to move a different way. So you notice when I qualified today, I didn't qualify as being in recovery because I'm not sure that's where I'm at. I'm just living a different life. And that different life is a life that doesn't include alcohol and hasn't included alcohol for 22 years and won't include alcohol as long as I would. And I know that, like I live and breathe. All right. Back to discovering secular AA. So, so I'm here in, in the Pacific Northwest and I'm not going to meetings and I'm playing in a group with a friend of mine in a little home band in West Seattle. And the guy who's the real bad drunk in our group decides to do a header down the stairs and breaks his back. He's our bass player. We need a new bass player. So uh, the leader of our band goes to his music teacher and says, can you help us? And the guy says, yeah, I think I know somebody who might be able to help. And uh, this guy shows up and he plays bass. And um, during the first time he shows up in our, in our little group, he starts talking. And the minute he opens his mouth, I know he's one of us. You know how it is sometimes when you just know somebody's in program, just by the way they present? I knew this guy was in program, like within the first 10 words he spoke. And after, you know, we played for a while, I took him off to one side and said, are you a friend of Bill's? <laughs> he said, of course. And we started talking about our respective sobrieties. And... Um, I said, he said, how long have you been sober? I said, 22 years. I said, how long have you been sober? He said, 35 years. I said, oh. So he asked me, where are you going to meetings? And I said, I'm not. And he said, now you are. <laughs> I said, okay. I'll, he said, I'll pick you up at 7.30. I said, okay. <laughs> so so 7.30 that night, I was in his car going to an AA meeting. Uh, at that point, he and I were both, you know, in traditional AA. And I went to a traditional AA for the first time, to a traditional AA meeting for the first time in two years. And it was a, it was a small meeting. 
in the basement of a church, maybe a half a dozen to a dozen people in there. And the people were, you know, pretty easygoing, you know, not, you know, not real, not big book thumpers and that sort of thing. And, uh, but, you know, they did the readings and they did the prayers and they did this and they did that. And it took me a little while, but I, I remembered what it was that I didn't like about traditional language, going to traditional language. So, um, so I made a decision uh, to see if I could find, I knew secular AA existed. I was just wondering if there might be a secular AA meeting close to where I live. So I went online and I looked up secular AA and sure enough, there was a secular AA meeting five minutes from my house in person, in the flesh. In fact, there were two of them, five minutes from my house. <laughs> I mean, what a bonanza, right? So I said, well, what the hell? I need to go and see what this is about. So I went to the first one and I, I liked it. I liked it right away. Uh, they were using the little book. You know, the, the book that has the, the, I think there were 20 different variations of the 12 steps. They would read from one of those and then we would discuss that particular variant of the 12 steps. And I liked that. But then I went to a Sunday morning um, secular AA meeting here in my, the town I live in. And it was fantastic. I just absolutely loved that meeting. Yeah, it just floated my boat. It was like it was like this higher power monkey had been lifted off my back. Uh, didn't have to pray, didn't have to hold hands, didn't have to listen to the third step. It was very refreshing, very refreshing. And I really felt like I was home and that this was a place I could keep coming back to and be comfortable. That was November of 2019. Anybody want to guess what happened in December of 2019? Right. <laughs> I think we all know what happened just about then, right? The coronavirus came. And I literally was able to go to three in-person secular AA meetings. And then they got shut down. And I'm going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This isn't fair. I just found you guys. So then I went online to see, well, maybe, maybe these meetings are available online. I did not know Zoom, didn't know the platform, didn't know how to use it, had to discover Zoom, had to figure out how to use it, and found a secular AA meeting. Got online with that secular AA meeting, and it was magic. You know, I'm going to digress a little bit. I hear people say that they just cannot relate well to uh, these virtual meetings that, that, that we're in. That has never been a problem for me. That has never been a problem. I, uh, as long as I can look at your faces, I feel as if I'm in the same room with you. It's as if we were in a face-to-face -face meeting together. And I can bond and have bond as a result of coming to these secular AA meetings, just as thorough as I ever did going to face-to-face -to -face meetings, traditional or secular. So I love the Zoom platform. I've gone from no meetings 
to a meeting a day. I'm in a, I'm in a secular AA meeting every day of the week. It's great. I love it. I love being back in the program and I love being with you guys. So, so the next thing that happened that was kind of cool is I went to my friend who had got me to go to that traditional AA meeting and I said to him, you know, he, he was a scientist, this guy. I said, you know, you really should come check out secular AA. You, you just, just, just come to a meeting and, and take a look at it. And I managed to get him into one of those face-to-face uh, -face meetings that, uh, that existed before the pandemic hit and they got shut down. And he came to one meeting and he was hooked <laughs> and I got him in. And ever since then, he's been leading meetings uh, on the, the home group that I'm a, a member of. And he's, he's just a great guy. He's just an absolutely fantastic person. I, I love the fact that I was able to be his Eskimo. He was my Eskimo to get me back into traditional, and I was his Eskimo to get him into secular. And it just works. It just works. Okay. One of the things I did have a problem with coming into secular AA was, and a question that I couldn't answer because I didn't have an answer for it was, how do people in secular AA sponsor newcomers? Hmm. You know, in traditional AA, sponsoring a newcomer is pretty straightforward. I mean, basically, you've got two reference sources, right? You have the big book, and you got the 12 and 12. And the consistency of the program in traditional AA was something I found very comforting. Everybody was speaking the same language. Everybody was working the same program. Everybody had the same speak. Everything was moving one way, one way. And at the beginning, when I came into traditional, that, that was what I needed. I needed that consistency. That was important. When I came into secular AA, I, I look at secular AA as sort of the wild, wild west of AA. It's like everybody's got a different take, everybody's got a different book, or everybody doesn't have any book at all, or everybody kind of does their own thing, which is great. But, you know, that kind of left me sort of floating about, well, what if somebody comes into secular, it comes, comes to me because, you know, I, I'm, I'm committed to helping newcomers if they come in trying to get sober. What would I do? How would I proceed? What would I offer them in the way of a method for getting, getting sober and secular? So I started looking around for that, and I bumped into uh, Jeff Munn's book, Staying Sober Without God. And that worked. Uh, I had looked at some other books. Uh, I had not seen Living Sober, which is interesting because that was around from the time that I got sober, but I wasn't even aware it was there until after I saw Jeff Munn's book. I saw Jeff Munn's book and it just resonated, just resonated. First of all, I love the steps. I am a, I, I am a step-seeking missile. I love the steps. And I wanted to be able to, if given an opportunity to with a newcomer, in secular AA, give them at least the outline of what it was that I was able to get sober, how I got sober, that method. Uh, and the practical steps in Jeff Munn's book gave me that, gave me a way to do that, that wasn't higher power based, that was modern, that incorporated uh, uh, current therapies, 
And I, I, I went for it, book, line, and sinker. And I love that book. I think it's, uh, for me, for me, it gives me an opportunity to keep the structure of the steps in place and not have to deal with the, with the whole notion of a higher power. So I haven't actually, as it turns out, I, I haven't gotten one sponsee in Secular AA since I've come in, but you know, right now he doesn't seem interested in using a step approach and I ain't pushing. I ain't pushing. He's coming to meetings, he's staying sober, his life is working better. And um, I'm just, just, he calls me every day. He goes to, to meetings three, four times a week. I'm letting him ride. I'm letting him go. And he seems happier. So looks better, seems happier. So I'm happy. All right. Happy with that result. So uh, yeah, secular, uh, secular AA is, is my home. Let me, let me make this clear. My, my thinking is that I will never, ever go to a traditional AA meeting again. Why would I want to? Why would I need to? This is home for me. I'm also fairly convinced that I won't ever go to a face-to-face -face meeting. Why would I want to? Why would I need to? When I can bond with you people right here, right now, and be completely satisfied with that and have that be completely fulfilling for me. I don't have to leave my house. I don't even have to put on pants. <laughs> I can just sit here and be with you and love on you and let you love on me. And it works for me. This works for me. It's perfect. It's perfect. So the coronavirus, while it's been absolutely terrible, has also, for this alcohol, been a blessing in disguise. Silver lining. Pandemic. Anyway, so I'm going to wrap it up now with what what has happened to me, where I am in my program, uh, and how it fits into my life. Primarily now, I've been in program for a while, and primarily now, what I do is the best I can to live in step ten. I think early on I said something about step ten being the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for me. That's what it is. Step 10 is what keeps me in check. Step 10 is what gives me the ability not to say bad things to myself about myself. Gives me the ability to have some kind of peace, some kind of stasis in my life. Gives me the ability when I get off kilter to realize I'm off kilter and fix it quick. I don't like not being in balance. Step 10 has given me balance. Step 10 lets me know when I'm not there. Step 10 is it for me. I take a personal inventory, not every day. I take a personal inventory anytime I can connect with my insides and my insides aren't right. When something's going on with me, and it's not right. And, and the goal, my goal with that step is to keep that connection as alive as I possibly can so that I can know as quickly to real time as I can get there when I'm out of balance, when something has happened and I need to pay attention to it 
and I need to do, possibly need to do something about it or change my thinking or keep my damn mouth shut? That's a big one. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I love and I live in that 10th step. Now I know, you know, meditation and being in service and all that stuff. But for me, step 10, that's what I call the internal observer step. That step is the step that does it for me. The internal observer, something keeping an eye on me. And I also know that I need to stay close to you because I'm far too close to myself to ever really be able to see myself clearly. Being here with you people, listening to your stories and listening to how you're coping with life and how you're staying sober without a higher power keeps me connected to my internal mechanism. Keeps me, keeps me in balance. I need to hear what's going on with you because I'm looking for the resonance points. I'm looking for the connections. I'm looking to, for the identification. I'm waiting for you to say something that goes, click. Oh yeah, that, yes, yes. I understand that, I, I, I get that. I need to make sure that I keep that close to you. Just like I need to make sure that I stay real close to how I felt the day I bought it. And I do, I never forget that. I never forget falling into that pit. I never forget what that pit felt like because I never want to feel it again. Just a little like a marble of that it's, that lives inside you all the time. Never goes away. Okay. So I think that's pretty much it. Um, I'll just wrap it up with, um, I, I love AA. I, I, I just, AA is responsible for why I'm alive today. Secular AA has given me a, a place to be where I feel like I really fit in and I really belong. I love the, the depth and the breadth of the topics that we're able to get into here. I love the fact that we're not restricted to AA literature. I love all that stuff. I want it all. I want more. My, my drug of choice has always been more. And I want more out of this. I want as much out of secular AA as I can get. I want it right now, and I want it all the time. <laughs> and with that, thank you for letting me share.